All right, welcome everybody to Magic in Anime. I, I think this is on. You can hear me, correct? Yes. Oh, good. All right. If we're not being Woo. loud enough, tell us. I'll just yell louder. There's no upper limit. So, um, I can attest to that. There is no upper limit. That's true. She can. Yeah. Uh, okay, so this is uh, Magic in Anime. Welcome to Magic in Anime. As we start, uh, this is an expansion of our podcast, so we like to start all of our podcasts with Welcome Heathens and Witches to the Horn And Cauldron Podcast. podcast. Yeah, so uh, this we do a uh, once-weekly sort of magical kind of podcast, talking about like uh, all sort of different magical stuff, and uh, this is our second year doing this particular panel, Magic in Anime, uh, here at Fanime, even though we've been going to Fanime forever, and... Um, so we decided to do another one focusing on three different anime, and we're gonna get into that. Uh, after we go over each anime, we'll have a little bit of time for Q&A. Kinda got that scheduled in. Um, and then also we have uh, like stickers and business cards down here. Help yourself. <laughs> uh, I made a bunch of stickers, so have some stickers. Have a bit, take a business card. Um, and we've also got our Book of Shadows pages, which is a part of our Patreon. We'll talk about all of that at the end, so don't worry about that now. Oh, so you can flip through those. Yeah, so this year our theme was uh, spooky and paranormal. So we're talking mostly about ghosts and psychic abilities and paranormal stuff. Very cool. And uh, a warning from here on out, spoilers abound. So this is a quick intro about us. We, uh, we've been doing this for a while. Like I went before, I'm... Not great with the timing on these. Don't worry about it. Uh, <laughs> so these are the three anime we're, we're going over uh, today is Mushishi. Uh, which we watched on Hulu, uh, but is also available on Crunchyroll. Uh, the Junji Ito Maniac uh, Japanese tale of, Tales of the Macabre, uh, which we watched on Netflix, and then uh, Medical Chan, which uh, we watched on Crunchyroll. Um, and uh, as she said before, spoilers, all the spoilers. So obviously if we have to talk about this anime, we have to talk about how it ends and stuff. <laughs> so sorry if you haven't seen these. Although Mushishi's old, so I mean, come on. Uh, <laughs> we're gonna start with that one first. Let's go right into Mushishi. Yeah, so Mushishi is actually based on a manga and this anime is a bit old. It aired in 2005 to 2006. There's actually two seasons of Mushishi and for all of these, we've only watched the first season. Um, this is the only one technically that has more than one season. In, so we're not talking about Yet. anything that happened in season two today, just season one stuff. Uh, and in this show, we follow a Mushi master named Ginko as he travels around uh, sort of fantasy 19th century Japan, uh, researching Mushi and helping people that are affected by the Mushi. And uh, Mushi are essentially life in its purest form. Some Mushi can be seen, some Mushi cannot be seen, some can take on human form, some appear only as ghosts, and even some can turn human spirits into Mushi. And Mushi, we learn from Ginkgo in some of the later episodes in season one, they used to live in harmony with the flora and fauna of the world and where the flora and fauna thrive and live, so did the Mushi. But in places where they were wiped out also, so too were the, the Mushi. So they're essentially these um, like nature spirits and yeah, we see that Yeah, they're presented often. as nature spirits. Uh, they... In my mind, I always think of them as sort of like the living fungus. There's there's like a very mushroom adjacent sort of vibe about them. Um, 
And in this one here, so we're talking about like what are the mushi. So uh, this uh, uh, uppermost picture in the from your guys' direction, left hand side, with the little coil coming out of her head, is like a regular person who has been essentially infected with the mushi, and they're trying to like extract it from her. So think of it like a possession or something like that. If you're going from the like spirit side of it, right, and everything. Uh, uh, Ginkgo, the guy, our main character, the Mushi Master, he sort of approaches these from like an almost like Chinese medicine sort of a thing. So it's like half like sort of biology and science and half like spiritualism and like sort of mysticism and magic. So like sometimes he's solving like Mushi cases. Think of this as your like, as your like police procedural this anime is not so distant from like uh from like bones or you only say that because you're obsessed with bones that's right fair now. that's true i am <laughs> you should watch that show it's just an aside um but uh so like it's essentially like he's wandering and then he runs into some people and they have like a mushy based problem and he's like all right i'm kind of the guy that can fix that and then he fixes it for him and then he moves on right uh and that's sort of the way each episode goes it's kind of that like monster of the week sort of a thing. Um, and so for like some of these, he resolves through like pure mysticism, right? Uh, the one with the young girl and the green uh, cup, she's like a grandma who became a spirit because half her spirit got trapped in the mushy dimension realm, sort of like the fairy realm kind of thing. Uh, but her like physical form is still here. So she never aged, and she's, like, really only visible when she wants to be, right? And it's because she drank from this cup as part of, like, a mushy, like, ritual, right? To be, like, converted, for lack of better words. Which is, yeah. this episode is very much, like, you know, uh, uh, the, like, Western equivalent is, like, if you go to the fae realm, like, if you go to fairies, you don't eat or drink anything of the fairies, or that's how they get you. Like, that's really how they're, like, doing that kind of an episode, you know? Yeah, yeah. So during season one, we see a lot of different types of mushi, and they kind of boil down into two categories. Uh, the first one being, like, mushi appearing visually as humans. Not humanoids, but like actual humans. And that kind of ties into this fey thing. So that's very similar to changelings, something that you hear a lot about in uh, Western mythology and magical practice, but really fairies and fey spirits have existed in every single culture throughout the world and actually in a pretty similar manner. So these are similar to changelings in that they are not humans, but are pretending to be humans and they can't escape their mushy nature. So no matter how hard they fake it, they're never actually going to make it. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're always being like called back to the mushy. They're like data. They can pretend to be human, but they're not they're not really human, guys. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So in episode one, which is the green seat, that's the one with the grandmother and the cup there. So she once attended a mushy banquet, uh, where if a human drinks the whole cup of sake that they're offered, they will turn into a mushi. She only drinks half the cup, which caused basically half of her life to live in our reality. I mean, 
our reality in the show, which is sort of a fantasy world, but also kind of not. Um, and then half of her to live in the Mushi world. We understand through the course of this show that there is a very distinct line from our reality and the Mushi reality, which is really continuing this parallel scene around the world in stories about the Fae, where if a human goes to a Fae or a Fae realm or dances in a fairy circle, I think most of us have probably heard of this stuff, they turn into a fairy. Or maybe they can never go back to their old life. Or maybe they just drop dead. Who knows? The stories are different depending on who you hear from. Yeah. Um, but we also see where Mushi are using humans as hosts, and we see this in episode six, which is called Those Who Inhale the Dew. And in this episode, we meet a girl who lives on a small island. Actually, a boy who lives on this island who has been friends with this girl since they were tiny is the one who asks Ginkgo to come and help. So this girl lives on the small island and she is treated by, like a living god by the island's people. And the girl, she ages every night and dies. So in the morning, she's reborn, she's fresh, she's young. And as the day goes on, she ages and ages until she basically dies of old age. Um, and we find out through the course of this episode that um, not only is her family trying to um, take advantage of this by saying she's a living God, her touch will give people powers. Maybe donate money. She keeps being reborn. It's super crazy and wild. Come visit. Like, it's very, like, showmanshipy, you know? Yeah, they're the way like... They're trying to do it. They're like, Akoya, you need to do another, um, you need to do another miracle because we need more rice. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, so we find out that there is a Mushi that's living in her nose that dies every night. And in the morning, the Mushi's offspring hatches. So we can see this re like death and rebirth life cycle. As long as the girl is affected by the Mushi, her lifestyle will also mirror the Mushi. So every day she is going to die until she decides not to have the Mushi as hosts inside of her. Um, and that's kind of actually horrifying. <laughs> it's super it's super horrifying. And it, it doesn't it's not like she's like like a young girl and stays a young girl. Like she ages full Benjamin Button the whole way through, you know? And at the end of the night, like, you know, dies of old age and then is reborn the next day or what have you. And of course her parents are very against getting this removed because like it's putting them at a high seat in like their community and it's allowing them to make like a bunch of money and get the like, donations and have the best house and all this kind of stuff. But she's obviously suffering because like she can't do anything, you know, because she's aging so rapidly like every single day and then being re being reborn the next morning you yeah. know yeah aside from it being kind of like a reverse benjamin button effect um we can see that this is similar to possession by a spirit or channeling a spirit so in the real world, so IRL, there's a lot of magical precedent for mediums, the, that is people who communicate with spirits, to channel an entity. And sometimes that's on purpose, and sometimes that's on accident. Uh, but usually the spirit will inhabit the body temporarily, but sometimes, you know, a short stay is a longer stay than you would think. Sure, yeah. Uh, think, and think of like a seance, sort of. That's like kind of like the most common representation of a like spirit occupying a body is either a seance in a 50-50 good bad way right some seance is good some seance is not so good it depends on the movie um or like a possession you know i mean like 
all of the possession like movies. Like literally every exorcist or Every exorcist movie, movie, right? And that's that's clearly like a bad spirit that's having a deleterious effect on the, the body that it's occupying and, uh, you know, controlling like what that body does. And generally you hear people who've been affected by that talk about like not being the pilot of their body. They're sort of like stuck behind like, stuck behind a barrier that they can like see that they're doing a thing and hear their voice saying words, but they have like no ability to control any of it. They're just like along for the ride, which is just the, like the most horrifying sounding thing you could possibly experience, <laughs> right? So it's like that kind of a thing. So clearly this girl is like in one, you know, she's suffering. But also sometimes the person who is hosting the spirit doesn't see that as a negative thing. We can see this in historical precedent from the oracles of Delphi in ancient Greece. There were many different oracles in a lot of different places, but the oracles of Delphi are the most well-known and also the most studied. And there's a lot of different ways that people think that they did their prophecy type job but really um what you know sort of taking the historical and the magical tradition and blending them into one mega thing you can kind of see that there are accounts from the oracles at delphi where people were like um indicating that the person who is foretelling the prophecy is being possessed by the spirit and it is essentially the spirit of Apollo at Delphi is allowing them to see the future and to be able to translate it to out loud. So sort of like having foresight. And we actually see another episode of Mushishi where they use foresight. Um, that is episode 25, Pleasant Sights, Woeful Sights. And um, it definitely shows the positives and negatives of being a um, <laughs> of being an oracle. Yeah, it starts off. It's one of those like it starts off with like it's all good. Like <laughs> I can see the future. I can I can help you. Don't buy that thing. Don't don't take that that path with your cart because the there's going to be a rock slide. And it starts good, and then the town starts to kind of rely on this guy a bit much, and it starts to stress him out a little bit. But then of course, if you can see the future, you can't see everything all the time. So as soon as one bad thing happens, now, well, why didn't you tell me? Am I not donating enough money? Are you asking for more stuff? And it like ruins this guy and inevitably ruins like his entire community because they begin to rely on him to be able to predict what's gonna happen even though he doesn't really have control over what he's gonna predict, you know what I'm saying? So it's one of those sort of relationships there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and in Mushishi, we can also see that some humans can see the Mushishi, or excuse me, the Mushi exceptionally well. Um, so unless somebody can see the Mushi, it's almost impossible to believe what they are. But also it seems like pretty much everybody can see the Mushi but not all the time. Yeah. Um, and we well, can see like, that with a few like, different there's ones. There's like various degrees. So there are people who can't see it. And then there are people who can sort of like only see the like most like raw natural form of the Mushi. So this, uh, and I don't know if everybody over here can see it, but this uh, lowermost corner picture where you see just like a bunch of what looks like strings of glowy beads. That's like a very common form for the Mushi where they're just like, pollen almost right it's just sort of like this material floating in the air or like um like a thing uh you know like a mushroom on a tree branch or like on a root or something like that or that, like fireflies yeah or like fireflies or something that seems to be the most common form of like everybody can see it mushy and i think it's because it's closer it's sort of 
it's kind of talked about in a way that that's like closer to the like raw life energy form of Mushi. But then you also have like more specific form of Mushi, like the, like the giant fish guy up here in the corner. Um, and then you also have Mushi that, that emulates stuff that you are supposed to see as part of its sort of like life cycle for hunting, which is kind of technically not the right way to say that. Uh, this one where this gentleman's sitting in front of this rainbow, uh, that's a rainbow that shows up in a specific, like a, near a specific village in the mountains uh, that everybody can see this rainbow. And most people are like, oh, look, it's a beautiful rainbow. That's great whatever, right? But if you go and you like chase the rainbow, right? Like if you go to find the pot of gold at the bottom of the rainbow kind of a thing, then you can find where the rainbow emanates from the ground. It's just like a hole in the ground with just like a beam of rainbow coming out of it. Uh, and this guy here, he put his head in that beam of rainbow. He literally because, wanted to taste that rainbow. Yeah, guys. smart <laughs> s smart moves, right? Smart moves. So he, so he put his head in that beam and now he's addicted to chasing the rainbow. It just like addicts you to chasing the rainbow. Uh, and that's that whole Mushi's life cycle. It just wants to get people addicted to chasing the rainbow. Is this a metaphor for drugs? Uh, I, you know, maybe? It's probably a metaphor for drugs. It takes place or Starburst in or the whatever. time. It's supposed to take Skittles, place in this yeah. time frame from like the, like the sort of late 1700s to like late 1800s i know that's like a hundred years right but you know it's it's a it's an anime um so there's a lot of you know you see a lot of people abusing substances in that time frame so it very well may be like a uh, play off of heroin addiction opium yeah. addiction it could, it could easily be a like chasing <laughs> the dragon sort I mean, of a reference you know maybe somebody went back in time brought a bag of skittles <laughs> yeah. this guy got obsessed ruined people's lives right yeah, yeah. um but but it, it it also i mean like this like especially this slide specifically, we wanted to try to exemplify the different forms the Mushi can take. This one here, you see the girl who's using a pair of chopsticks to grab words, and then she's able to cause them to flow out of her hand. So she records the stories of Mushishi, the people who like wander around like Ginkgo and help solve like problems with Mushishi because it's sort of a developing science still. Not everything is known. He has like one friend who's a collector and if he doesn't know an answer, he has to write a letter to his friend and like pay a kid to run there <laughs> because it, like he just, he runs into stuff frequently in this first season that he just like genuinely has never seen or heard of or only heard like legends. So like you can't really trust that if you're trying to like save some kid's life or something. Um, so uh, like this, this girl here, she collects the stories of Mushishi, but in the act of doing that, because Mushishi are so exposed to that like raw life power, the like magic of the Mushi, that their stories come to life. So the words written on the page are, are like living Mushi, right? And so there's like a whole kerfuffle where all the Mushi try to escape the pages. And she has to grab them. She has to like grab each line of text with a pair of chopsticks and like wrap them around her body and then reapply them to the pieces of paper to stick them down. And her paper has to be this very special paper that like pins Mushi down or they'll escape again just to store them in these special caverns and stuff like that. So like both Mushi exist in this like ancient form of things. The big fish um, is like one of the more ancient, like it's uh, like traveling Mushi that goes around and just kind of like messes with people. Um, and then there's the sort of like younger form of Mushi, which is that spontaneous creation of life that comes out of simply the act of interacting with Mushi like this text here. 
right? She's not generating Mushi. It's just that she's recording a story about Mushi so accurately that life forms naturally from that. Almost like the spontaneous creation of intelligence through uh, connection in computers, like our big AI fear thing. Like, it's almost that sort of an energy that they bring about in this episode. Because she's just, like, recording stories, that's all she's trying to do, but she has to, like, fight against this constant, like, this, or she has to fight this constant battle against the creation of life, simply because of what she's doing. Yeah. You know? And also, this episode in particular is uh, really one of my favorite episodes because it's really visually nice. But in this, you don't really get to know much about our main character, Genko. And in this, he kind of, sort of, indicates that maybe he'd be interested in a relationship with this girl. And y'all, I was screaming. Like, I want, I ship this. I ship this hard. So if you have not seen this, wait for that episode and then internally and scream with me. <laughs> um, so one of the things that we also learn, one through this episode, but sort of indicated in other episodes, is that the more you see the Mushi, the more you interact with the Mushi, the better you get at seeing them. It's almost like... It's almost like working a muscle, but there is a limit to where seeing the Mushi affects you negatively, sort of like uh, radiation poisoning. Um, to some radiation, when you're next to a banana, okay, because bananas are vaguely radioactive. Yeah. But like the more radiation you're exposed to over time, there's not there's a limit where there's that's like, there's like not okay. There's like deleterious effects both to you physically and to your ability to not be like got by a Mushi, right? Because they're like they're they're not like hunting humans right they're not like an enemy in any sort of a grand sense it's just that they like like a mold growing on something or you know it's it's the like a rolling a rolling rock gathers no moss well if a rock stands still it's going to gather moss if you're around mushi a bunch you're going to start like gathering side effects from the mushi themselves right one of which is the the perception of the like ley lines that the Mushi flow through underground called the Mushi River. Yeah, and we actually see this in episode two, so they hit you with this early. Yeah, they, uh, they really get you going quick in this anime, so that way they can get to the storytelling. Yeah, yeah. So episode two is called The Light of the Eyelid, and in this episode, there is a little girl who is so sensitive to light that she must live in the dark. And in the beginning of this episode, you are like, this girl's parents, they're abusive, right? Oh my, right? she this lives, in, like, she lives okay? in like a concrete shed in the backyard. It's dark. <laughs> with no windows. Bro. It's yeah. super dark. And then you learn that... It's because she can see the Mushi. She can see this river of lights, like literally a river of lights that's made of tiny Mushi. And the river can damage the eye if you look at it too much. And Ginkgo, after talking to her, understands that she is basically using her Mushi sight. They call it a second eyelid in this episode. So opening your second eyelid, closing your second eyelid. Basically, this girl saw the Mushi too much, and it made it so that she was so sensitive to regular light that she couldn't be in the light anymore. She had to live her whole real-life world existence in the dark until Ginkgo comes along, and he tries to chase the Mushi out of her eyes. And that is... I think we have a picture of that one. That's the with the yeah. silver, like, with sort like of... Ectoplasm with, like, ectoplasm coming, coming out, out of her, her eyes. Yeah. Yeah, he's able to drive the Mushi out with moonlight because it's bright enough to irritate the mushi and cause it to want to escape but not so bright as to damage the girl 
Yeah. And after he chases the Mushi out of her body and out of her eyes, he because she's looked at it too much, he has to replace her eye because it basically burnt out her eyes. Um, so Ginkgo has to create a magical glass eye for her and then, ironically, has to put an Amushi in it so that she can see. Um, and it's a really like heavy episode for the beginning of a show, but it's really interesting because it really gets you to understand the pros and cons of um, interacting with the Mushi. And we sort of see this in real life uh, when we talk about having, quote unquote, the sight. So clairvoyance, clairaudience, psychic abilities, being able to communicate with spirits or deities on the other yeah, side. Seeing beyond the veil, any of that kind which of can stuff. Yeah. Defini- which can be something that is both um, good for the person who is the seer and also can be bad depending on use and abuse of it, much like really anything else. Um, And having the sight is also something that's been talked about in every culture around the world. We're talking about like global similarities um, and it goes as far back as we have records to keep. And we're gonna talk a little bit more about psychic abilities, clairvoyance, clairaudience, having the sight when we get to Midiko-chan. So we're gonna put a pin in that for now. Um, But he had mentioned the Mushi River and this is a fascinating concept because it makes me also think of ley lines and spiritual vortexes. So a ley line was originally talked about as a line that connected important historical landmarks because in the 19 like in the 19 early in early last century um, there, <laughs> there was a lot of um, there was a lot of spiritual British men basically and women but mostly men who were Fancy like British I am people. gonna make sense out of the world in the way that makes sense in my head uh, and that's why we have the concept of ley lines because this one dude was like hey you know where Stonehenge is? And you know where this other historical church is? I don't remember the name. Uh, he's like, if I draw a straight line from it, there's definitely power, like a highway, connecting those two lines. Yeah. Um, that hasn't really think, been proven, think, and it was kind of shaky. ancient aliens energy. That's what these guys were bringing to, like, but history wearing, like, and science. But they were, like, very fancy and very wealthy, right? So, of course, <laughs> when you're that fancy and wealthy, people are going to immediately believe everything that you say. So they would just be like, they're like, well, if Stonehenge is here and the pyramids are here and something in China is here, then if we draw this triangle, it's a, per- it's a perfect triangle, equilateral triangle on Earth. So, therefore, something else was doing it. And then in the, in the center, in the there's a days, spiritual vortex. Yeah, in the old days, power. it was, like, spirit and, like, ghosts in your blood and magic and stuff. And, like, now it days people think that aliens done it because like we can't do fancy stuff or whatever that's on about so so they were kind of bringing a lot of ancient aliens energy which was which is what kind of invented the idea of ley lines oh, regardless yeah. of the fact that they were kind of walking to the door of like actual like um like star alignment and like celestial alignment and like seasonal alignments that ancient people who had the free time to like look at the sky a bunch um, and like touch grass and stuff. Uh, and were, also did were, lots of math. We're capable of doing, um, but they didn't believe that ancient people did it for any reason other than like spirits were telling them to do it, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, that was the original was sort of like what is a ley line and a spiritual vortex. But over the last like 20 or 30 years, the concept of that has really changed and morphed. Um, and a ley line um, really now is used to describe a place or a stretch of land connecting particularly magically powerful locations. So like sometimes you go and you visit a place and you get like 
awe or you get like a vibe about it. And that could be because that place has special significance to you for some reason, but for some people, they have determined that those are vortexes, a single location that essentially boosts your magical power in a very specific way. Um, you can think of this kind of as uh, shrines or temples or churches, but most of the time a ley line or a, a power vortex are naturally occurring items. Yeah, so it's generally forests, not like because rivers, they put a mountains, church there. caves, waterfalls, all of that stuff is really what people think of as ley lines. And sometimes and oftentimes tying back into the Mushi and the Fae and the fairies, uh, we there are firsthand reports of people who visit power vortexes or ley lines who then say there was also a bunch of weird fairy stuff happening like electronics were getting weird things were going missing coming back having other types of paranormal type experiences yeah 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 so this this that is mushishi before we move on to the next anime uh we've decided to build in question time in between each anime because it's hard for everybody to remember the questions until the very end we tried that last time it didn't work out so does anybody have any particular questions go ahead here in the red so are is there any mention of traditional more traditional yokai in the series also or is it just mushi it's just kind mushi of. there's not really like there are some there are some stories in the first season, but there's more in the second season yeah. that are a bit reminiscent of yokai. They're kind of they're kind of trying to draw a line between yokai and mushi, whereas mushi is mushi is like a nature spirit. So think of the um, you know basically everything in Princess Mononoke um, <laughs> is like a nature spirit, but a um, the yokai is generally an object that is either a person or an object that is not particularly magical, but becomes magical over time or through circumstances. And we do see that there are some Mushi who mirror this, and the girl with the writing is very similar to the way that you could see a yokai, especially if it was like the utensil that she wrote with or the book that yeah. was yokai. And you kind of get like Mushi item possessions. There's like a guy who paints a robe that makes you real sad for going home uh, because he had painted, he had painted the like inside of a, of a, of like an outer jacket with like the forest of his youth. And in that, in painting that, because he had used some paints that were made from natural material that had some Mushi in it, it's like infused with the spirit of the Mushi. And since these Mushi want to return home, the observer of this painting feels a yearning for home, like to go home to the like they're like where they were as children and stuff. So you kind of get like yokai adjacent semblances, but never anything like very directly yokai because it's 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 very much like nature spirits are the cause, and maybe we're just calling it yokai. Right, they're, they're sort of, they're not like saying yokai don't exist, but they're presenting a lot of facts where yokai are like, kind of maybe mushi instead, and we were just confused earlier. Yeah. Right, is, is kind of the vibe that they do with that, you know? Here in the pink? Um, so, uh, go, like, um, going on to yokai, I think, um, so would you say that the Mushi like, Mushi is just kind of like uh, a parallel or like, uh, I don't know the right words, Parallel is the right word or not, but kind of like the um, like kami or like the whole like because in Japanese 
um, the eight million kami are like everything has a soul and whatnot. So is the mushi kind of closer to the concept of the kami? That's a great question. It's kind of like the same answer as the yokai one. So I, the way that I kind of look at it is, is um, there's not just one type of spirit out there. Different yeah. spirits are bringing yeah. different energies. Yeah. And I definitely think that you kind of have this like Venn diagram thing happening yeah. where you've got like yokai and you've got like kami and you've got like mushi. And I think that there are places where they overlap yeah. where there could definitely be like the jacket that's kind of like a mushi and kind of like a yokai. And I think that you also have mushi. And we do see this in a couple of episodes um, where there are mushi that are kind of like kami and kind of like mushi. So I think that it's less of a hard line or a parallel referencing them than it is um, that this show is talking about just mushi. And there are some that are kind of like at the outer fringes on either side. But so they don't talk about anything that is specifically a kami or specifically a yokai. But they do talk about things that are very, very similar to that. That sort of present the same yeah. as like kami or yokai. And they like like in the episode where the where the little girl gets her spirit split from her physical form because of the mushi. I mean, you could you could make the argument that her spirit was the thing that was removed specifically from her body which is what's tying her to the mushi realm which is causing her not to age and be trapped in this like partial phase with reality kind of a thing um and i think that really the best coverage of the of the uh, the kami concept in the show is the way that um the mushishi don't so i mean they present the mushi in the form of like a physical thing that is extra dimensional or slightly out of phase with our reality that has some sort of a, a power or can act upon our reality in some sort of a quote unquote magical way right but at the same time i think that they they present how the mushishi solve the problem as a blend of both the like factual science of dealing with an infection right like a like a thing in your eye or a thing on your hand or whatever as well as the spiritual side of like not distressing the spirits of nature and living with nature and not distressing the spirits of the people that are affected by that or the creatures because it's not just humans that are affected by this it's also trees can be affected and houses and tools and things like that so they they treat it sort of as like I would almost say that the idea that spirits in like Kami style, everything has a spirit, th that is so accepted as a fact in this show that they don't really ever address it. They just know like, I'm not gonna do messed up stuff to Kami. Yeah, like there's <laughs> you know? one episode, I don't remember, I don't have the name of it written down, but it's about basically a living swamp. And it's this woman who is so sad that she turns into the swamp. So in in a way, but we hear these stories about this swamp that moves. It's a moving swamp. Sometimes it's over here, sometimes it's over there, sometimes it's over there. And the swamp has existed for hundreds of years at the time that this show takes place. And you can really sort of like, uh, like take a different lens and look at it as the locals probably view that as something that has a high amount of like kami energy where it's it has a spirit it is definitely an entity that is sentient um, but we learn that it is in fact a 
person who sort of joined with the kami of the swamp to become now a megamushi. And then there's there, you know, she decides that she uh, she decides that she wants to become one with the water. So you definitely see some things where you're like, oh, wow, I see this here and here. And that's the Venn diagram of it for me. Yeah. No, that's OK. No, it's no problem at all. It's no problem uh, here in the white. Also, we, there's a mic if you guys feel so inclined. But yeah. if not, just talk. Loud. You just yell. I'll hear you. It's primarily focused on ginkgo in the human realm, but often the like side effect of what's causing damage or like what's happening due to the Mushi is a function of the Mushi realm. Things like uh, there's one where a man dreams, he has like a pillow that has some Mushi in it. But again, think of it like a, like a, you got like some mold in your pillow that has some Mushi in it. So when he dreams, gross. the Mushi, I know it's so gross, but when he <laughs> dreams, the Mushi like, affect his sleep and turn his dreams into real life stuff so he can like summon things into existence with his dreams he does not know that he's doing this by the way he thinks that his life is just terrible um so like and that's clearly evidence of like and they talk about it as these mushi because they exist partially in the mushi realm and partially in our realm they're able to bridge the realm between real life and dreams Right. Or like the fact that like, there's another episode where um, deep in the mountains during the dead of winter, when everything is silent, when snowfall silences everything, you will find like these beautiful butterflies. And if you chase them, they will lead you to a place outside of our realm where it's always springtime. But the act of doing so, once you're there again, like it all kind of goes back to that fairy reference. Once you've done that, Every winter, you go to this realm and you gather like herbs and like nuts and like food from this realm, and then you fall asleep. And you don't age and you don't eat and you don't die, but you sleep all through the rest of winter. And it's this little boy who had stumbled upon this realm and like brought some berries and fruit home for his family because they were like starving because they live out in the woods. And uh, like he saved the family, but now every winter he goes and gathers berries, and then his mom like is obviously like. The kid's missing. I gotta find him. And then finds him in the woods with like a bag of like nuts and berries and you know like uh, like edible plants and such. But he's asleep. And then she has to carry him home. And he just sleeps until the first until the like the first rays of springtime or however they phrase it, um, because he's like touched that realm once and it affects him. So it, it often talks about this the Mushi realm as this place that kind of has like a really deleterious effect on the human body because being there is like so unnatural for us, right? So they do they do come they do talk about it often, but it's not really like a primary focus of this season is like what's going on in that realm. Yeah, yeah, you can kind of put together some of the way that the Mushi realm, like some of the rules within what you would consider the Mushi realm by watching the episodes, but they never really give you like a clear like info dump about like what it, does it look different? Is it the same? You know, you, you kind of piece it together, but yeah. the way that I always, the way that I imagine it is kind of like, uh, like dreamland. Like when I sleep and I dream, I have dreams that are like, that take place in, dreamland and it's like 
the house that I live in, which is an amalgamation of all the houses that I've ever lived in, and a neighborhood that's very specific, and the places are always like very specific places, but very different from the real like world that we live in. And that's kind of what I assume that that is like similar, but different. Yeah, it's like not necessarily spatially relational to our own and seems to be affected by your entry point because they present like the Mushi realm as sort of not, not non-uniform relative to the manner in which you interacted with that realm. Right. So like if you enter it through like the swamp does something different to your body than the like quiet place, the quiet springtime in the dead of winter, which is different than like when you're observing the Mushi realm uh, through the like glowing river of Mushi. All of these sort of cause you to interact with a different form of the Mushi realm, which uh, seems to imply that the realm has some sort of relative connection to the gateway that you're entering kind of like a Stargate thing maybe is kind of like the way that I think about it is like you're dialing a different address in the Mushi realm by like how you're getting to those Mushi. It's easier to talk about everything in science fiction. So. <laughs> <laughs> Forgive my weird analogies. Uh, okay. So um, we're going to move on to the next one guys. And uh, certainly, certainly a weird one, man. Junji Ito, Maniac, Japanese Tales of the Macabre. Um, this is this is such a fantastic show. If you are not a Junji Ito fan, or you've or you've like only briefly heard of him as just like a function of horror, like even his non-specifically horror art is absolutely fascinating. And they've done a great job of capturing the like. Uh, animations and uh, like manga and like physical drawings that he uses yeah. in the style of this anime. This is such a such a weird anime, yeah. and I love every single episode of it. Uh, and these episodes are like um, so. What, two? It's a series of short stories, Thank you, yeah. um, and we are and they're all written by Junji Ito. Uh, some episodes are one, like one episode is one story, and some of them is two. Um, and this is available on Netflix. Uh, and there's so there's a whole bunch of stories. We're not going to talk about every story um, here because we definitely don't have <laughs> the time for that. But we are going to talk about a couple of them. And the first story that we're going to talk about is. Uh, the Strange Hikizuri Siblings, The Seance. This is actually the first one. Yeah, okay, so bef before we get before we get into the stories themselves, which we're gonna kind of go through these with a bit of speed, most of, the, most of the pictures up on this slide here are from either the intro or the outro of the, of the anime. The one with the floating heads is, from what I've seen, Probably the most recognizable thing from the it's anime. It's horrifying, guys. It's it's oh my god! It's, it's so so awkward. nightmarish. It's so nightmarish. Um, but uh, but what I want what I wanted to specifically call attention to in this first slide with regard to the intros and the outros is the post credit sequence for each episode. You know how they have the like in most anime, it's like next time on, and then they give you a thing. So the next time on in this is this sort of multicolored thing down in the bottom corner here with the like skeleton arm and the centipede or what have you. And it is telling a story about a person who's trapped whilst also giving you hints about what the next stories are going to be. 
but they don't say it. So it's not like, oh, it would be really bad if some floating heads came here or something. Like, they're never giving you it very directly. He's just, like, sort of rambling psychotically as he's trapped in this prison that's torturing his mind. Um, and in his ramblings, you will pick out, like, certain words or phrases, and you're like, is this what the next episode is about? Maybe, maybe this is what it's about. And then you watch the episode and you're just like, ah, oh, that's what it was about. So they're kind of giving it to you, but like not in a directly linear way. And the last post credit sequence tells you what's going to happen in the first episodes of the anime. Making it like a post credit sequence or a Boros of chaos. And it is so genius. It's so much fun. And it's just like a little three-minute thing at the end of each episode, but I had to include it and interrupt and talk about it because we had so much fun, like, at the end of each episode as it came on, and he's talking. We're like, listen, and then when the, when the like, that got done and it's waiting to load the next episode on Netflix, we're like, okay, is it this? Is this what the episode's about? Trying to, like, guess which part of his rant was, like, a prediction on the episode and which part was just this dude is, is living in a nightmare. So, so it's, it's a very fun way to do a post-credit sequence. If you have not seen this show, it's almost worth it literally just for that. Um, but this is technically a horror anime. Yes. So this one's, like, a little bit more spooky adjacent. Yeah, yeah. So more of these, a lot of these stories are more uh, horror than spooky. So we're picking out the ones that are a bit more paranormal. So um, the strange Hikizuri siblings, the seance. So in this one, which is a full episode story, a photographer and her friend, normal people, visit the Hikizuri siblings for a seance. And during the seance, we see a ghost take possession of one of the siblings. Later on, we learn that that was a hoax and actually a different sibling was possessed instead. So obviously, uh, seances. Yeah. Uh, so what is a seance? A seance is basically a ritual to communicate with spirits or slash things on the other side. They're usually held in a dark room with a medium that is somebody who can communicate with the spirit realm and several attendees. Some mediums go into a trance so, and most use at least one tactic to communicate with the other side, like channeling or receiving messages, um, Ouija boards, uh, spirit writing where you like take a pen and it just sort of takes you on a on a ride <laughs> takes your hand on a ride um a series of knocking or levitation uh spirit trumpets which is literally just regular trumpets just a, but from the spirit realm yeah it's just like you can hear trumpets um objects appearing to move and other sounds or smells now the interesting thing about this episode is that most of us when we think of seances we think of how fake they are um, or how horrifying they are depending on what sort of media you're thinking about right so seances had a huge boom in the late 1800s as part of what is called the spiritualism movement and so that's what most of our impressions of what seances to this day are from and that is a, a series of very famous people who got very into seances including like presidents oh like yeah the rockefeller family all kinds of important people were like you know where it's at seances the thing is so is cool. most of the famous people that were holding seances were fakes 
and and not just like these guys are faking a seance. I mean Hollywood production level tomfoolery, right? Uh, uh, cables running from underneath the table through the ground to a to another room over uh, secret speaking tubes. You know, like the copper tubes that you used to talk between floors in an old timey house. Like secret speaking tubes hidden behind like artificial holes in the wall that were covered so you could never tell there was a hole there. And like um, hollow walls. Hollow walls. Uh, practitioners of the seance, the mediums, got really good at like having their hands on the table and using their feet to actuate like uh, pressure systems. Uh, like compressed air was used. They would like compress air like in another building and like send it for like gusts of wind to rattle the curtains and things like that. So like kind of everything we know about seances is based around the fake seances, but they were so good. And it was so popular for so long that we just like accept all of this as an absolute fact about the way seances should go because it succeeded. I mean, they were, seances were held in the White House of this country for a good amount of time, right? Because they were so popular. Like if you were having fancy friends over, you're, you're gonna do a seance. Right, it's not a party yeah. until they somebody didn't do gets spooky. Sports. They just did you know? seances back then. <laughs> <laughs> now there are some seance, uh, I guess you could say practitioners, some people who led seances where we can see that they did not have any of these contraptions and the things that they are talking about, the things that were experienced by those in the room are totally unexplained. The most famous of these is a woman named Hella Blavatsky and she's so rad, I love her girl crush. Um, she was a pioneer of the spiritualism movement and actually wrote a lot of what we now consider today to be like pretty common tropes in movies and TV shows about channeling spirits and seances. And a lot of the seances that she did, people left like white face, like this this was real. Uh, so this is a really interesting story because we sort of see both sides of the seance, yeah. the much more popular and well-known, it's all a fake. And then also the, oh, but wait, jump scare, unexplained, yeah, maybe this is actually, real. Actually, maybe something real happened. So we get sort of both the like production end of the seance and the actual, well, you, you didn't like close the circles, some spooky stuff's going on. <laughs> Good for you. You now have to deal with this kind of a thing, right? So this was this was a very fun episode. And this yeah. is the this is like the starter episode for this for the series. And they get you right off from the gate. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So the next story we're gonna talk about is actually called The Story of the Mysterious Tunnel. Ooh. So there's a spooky tunnel in this town that has a cosmic ray observatory in it, and urban legends in the town indicate that the tunnel lures people in. The observatory is getting weird readings, and we learn that there's ghosts everywhere, and they are moving through the walls, through the people, through the equipment, through all of the stuff. Yeah, so, so the two pictures for this, the story of the mysterious tunnel here, the first one is the scientists with like all the ghosts. This was taken at the, um, like when they first started detecting cosmic rays at the observatory. So cosmic ray observatory, these are generally built in a place where there's gonna be little to no like movement in the ground as far away from any sort of EM production as possible. And the way these observatories work is you essentially make a bunch of light sensors like like simple cameras and you put them in a chamber filled with a super, super pure water. 
And every time, because cosmic rays are very, very small and they pass through everything and they're very hard to detect. So if you fill a chamber with water, uh, like super pure densified water, there's a chance that a cosmic ray will hit one of the atoms of water. And when it does that, it creates a tiny flash of light as it breaks the bond between hydrogen and oxygen, right? And when we observe that flash with these super, super sensitive cameras, we can tell that cosmic rays happened. Um, so these guys set up this facility and it's in like the best place or whatever, and they start detecting cosmic rays, but like way too many cosmic rays. So they're like, we, we're gonna win some Nobel prizes, guys. Like, what's going on? We're rich, <laughs> right? Because they like they they did it. They've they've done. They figured out cosmic ray detection even better than before. Um, but so they take this celebratory picture and they get it back. And obviously, ghosts. So that's not what you want to see as a scientist when you are about ready to win a Nobel Prize. And the, the story is told from the point of view of a group of kids who decide to like, you know how kids love to do like scary stuff? So they're like, they're like we're gonna go into this spooky tunnel and see what we can find. And they find this cosmic ray observatory, bother these scientists as children do. Uh, and then th we start, ha like the ghosts start attacking, they like turn on the cosmic ray uh, detector and ghosts start attacking again and the scientists and these children although they understand less of it start to realize that this cosmic ray detector isn't detecting cosmic rays it's detecting the interaction between ghosts and the water so like spirits just happen to like be drawn to this place which is like kind of vaguely uh, like vortexy, you know, or like, like we were talking about, like ley liney, like we were talking about in the Mushishi part. Um, so it's sort of bringing like that kind of energy. Uh, but this cosmic ray detector seems to like irritate the ghosts for some reason, which is never really gotten into. And so the ghosts just start like getting these people, just like drawing them into the spirit realm and disappearing all these scientists and stuff as these kids are trying to escape because like, obviously th that's horrifying. Um, so the unspoken thing they're trying to do in this is make this sort of comparison between like scientists detecting a thing that we barely understand, like a cosmic ray, to be fair, right? And something that we definitely don't understand like spiritualism from a purely scientific standpoint, and how the overlap of those things can be sort of deleterious, but also still detectable. Because this episode really, even though the kids approach this entire affair from a very spiritual ghost's standpoint, these scientists are really trying to explain everything that's happening with science. I mean, they are failing dramatically, but they are trying to describe it with science because as far as they're aware, they're supposed to be detecting cosmic rays, which, they like don't say it, but they walk right up to the door of being like, are cosmic rays ghosts? And that's what we're learning right now. <laughs> so they get right up to the edge of just like, maybe cosmic rays are ghosts, which is fantastic. I love that conclusion, even though they're like not trying to give you that conclusion, you know? And neither are we. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> maybe you didn't think you were maybe. gonna get science. <laughs> um, but this really speaks to me of like that ley line kind of thing. So are cosmic rays ghosts? I'm definitely not weighing in on that, but they definitely, the spirits are definitely appearing in a concentrated place and wreaking havoc, a negative havoc here, about what it is that's going on. 
Yeah. And that's kind of the TLDR of that one. So the next one is uh, library vision. So uh, there's this man who has a library and the books start disappearing and he becomes not only upset because his books are disappearing, but also obsessed with retaining the stories because the books keep disappearing. Um, and he ends like up trying to... unexplainably disappearing and he can't really figure out what it is. So his like solution to the books disappearing from his mansion is I'm going to commit every single book in this mansion to memory. You know, as you do. Um, as one does. Totally understandable. <laughs> so he decides to try and commit all of his books to memory, which only results in like more uh, sort of like spooky happenings and books disappearing. And, and also sort his of like relationship chaos. falling apart. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Ruins that relationship. But we also see that some of the characters from the books start appearing to him as spirits, like literally knocking on his door. Uh, and this is really interesting because of... Um, a, because it's very similar to what egregores are. So an egregore is a spirit entity that is created by a group of people, in this case, this specific person, but readers of a book that's created by thinking about the entity a lot, like a lot, a lot. And egregores can be created intentionally or on accident, but they sort of become sentient and take on and become their own entity. And because he is so obsessed with memorizing these books, particularly the books that like were his parents' favorite books, they become a physical manifestation of a thing from the other side, essentially, into our world. But he's like creating ghosts and monsters to ha to uh, haunt him simply by being so passionately focused on every tiny detail of these monsters and and it, it, uh, there's there's a part where he specifically like his his partner is like well like are you sure that it wasn't just like some branches tapping on a window or whatever and he was like no and he's describing the monster and you can't tell whether or not he's describing it from the book or from what he observed, because to him, it's all exactly the same, right? Yeah. So this really treats towards that idea that like, that like intention and focus has the capacity to sort of like alter reality itself in the form of this creation, which, you know, for like here we call egregores. Yeah, yeah. So next up is Tomie Photo. Uh, so Tomie is a series of stories by Junji Ito, but we're only doing a very specific one in this episode. And that's essentially uh, this girl in high school is taking pictures of the popular girl, Tomie, and the pictures show something like a growth, like a demon, like a spirit trying to escape her head. Um, so when we were talking about Mushishi, we talked about fae changelings, right? And this would be spot on for Tomie being a changeling. Although not necessarily a Mushi, not necessarily a Fae, because it seems like she's pretty evil. Um, so we can see maybe possession here. We can see maybe changelings here. Yeah, yeah. And she like, she she presents as like, you know, uh, top of her class. She's super popular. All the boys think she's hot. All the teachers like trust and respect her. She's in charge of the like ethics committee or like the rules people, right? The like, like hall pass police, right? So she's like, she's like, she's like, you know, the, the best among them, why would you ever doubt her? Uh, but these pictures reveal that she's like secretly a monster, right? And then 
uh, when the girl who takes the photographs sort of is just like, I don't know what to do with this. So I guess share it with everyone is the answer. She like shares it with everyone and some people sort of rail against this girl, but you see, you see several people who are so like enthralled by this girl that they just like don't, they're like clearly photoshops. Like fake fake news, so, so so they just side with this girl even though she's doing like horrible things and wields like iron power over this school, right? So it's it's very much that like sort of demon possession that like a uh, fake changeling is a is. Uh, often like the most popular child because they have they still have that like fey that if it's like uh you know how like vampires get you with the stare sort of a thing they have that power <laughs> to like overcome you and so and like overcome your mind and you kind of get that energy from her where like she just had these people just like they don't there's no way you would question her like oh yeah this picture shows she's got like some sort of weird growth coming out the back of her head that's all demony and stuff but like, that's probably not real so she's too nice why would that be true kind of a thing even though she's a monster this girl is evil like through and through but nobody's willing to see it you know so you get you definitely get very strong like fey changeling kind yeah. of vibes from this girl that are revealed through photography and i think of it as that like that like uh uh uh, the reason why vampires don't show up in mirrors is because of the silver thing, right? The reason why vampires don't show up in photos is because uh, silver is used in the processing of photos. I mean, anciently, not nowadays, the digital camera will take a picture of a vampire. But, like, that sort of an energy, you know? Yeah. So the next story is The Back Alley. Um, um, in this one, a man starts renting a room in a house with an alley behind it, and he can hear children's voices playing at night, but nobody is there. Oh, and this alley is like cemented off, 20 foot tall walls. You can't go into this alley, which yeah. is already like the sketchiest thing. Move out of that house. Yeah. Bro, five minutes get, into this episode, I was like, out. get out. Yeah. Don't be here, bro. It, <laughs> yeah, it turns out that the teenage daughter was murdering people um, in the alley and their souls were trapped. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so. It ends up that he lures the girl sort of into the alley, and then the ghosts of this of her victims uh, kill her in place. So what we're seeing here is uh, a situation where somebody's death really pins their spirit to a place, and that's something we're going to explore a little bit more in Mirokochan. Yeah. Um, but that appears sort of throughout yeah. a and, lot and of that, different that things. And that pinning is specifically like the oh man. It is just not clear on this projection, but you can kind of vaguely see their like shadows on the walls in that upper picture. And so in the anime, they like, there's just like six shadows on the wall down in this alleyway on these like cement wall. And that's like clearly what has pinned these children. Like that's their spirits during the daylight hours are these like permanent shadows on the wall, which is just horrifying. Absolutely nightmarish. <laughs> Well, and the next one is way more nightmarish, I think, which is called Headless Statue. So that's the mannequin picture. Um, so an art teacher dies under suspicious circumstances, and his specialty was creepy mannequins. Plaster no headless heads. mannequins. He believed that giving a head to them would, like, would like give them too much spirit. He's like, if it has a head and a face, 
then it's like a person that you're going to form opinions about. But if it's just a body, then you can't form opinions about like what kind of person this is. I don't know that that makes any sense. But that's what he believed. Uh, so he made these well, horrifying nightmare mannequins without <laughs> heads. And come yeah. to find out. He was wrong. Um, <laughs> because those mannequins came to life. Um, and they started stealing other people's they, heads. They so hunger they could have for their heads. own. Yeah. Um, and these mannequins, uh, they're made of like a plaster clay. And this is very similar to a golem, but with the heads of dead people. Yeah, uh, like a traditional are, Hebrew golem. Yeah, golems are magical creatures that are built out of an in uh, a lifeless substance like clay or wood or a robot even, um, and then brought to life through magic. And that's essentially what this teacher did was he created a physical egregore Gollum by thinking a whole lot about why he shouldn't give these things heads, and yeah. it turns out they really wanted heads, yeah. so they came and, to life and, to get heads. It seems that the that the like sort of activation of these golems consumed his life in the form of like he died in order for these golems to become animated. You know, so you're getting like a little bit of Frankenstein's monster, a little bit of like traditional Hebrew golems without the like uh, without the like practical magic side of and like a little bit of golems and a little bit of the like sort of kami, the like spirit of the clay itself. And with since they lack heads, they like that's the that's the piece of the puzzle they're missing. So they seek those out to find like completion into life. Yeah. For a lack of better words. Yeah. Uh, the next episode is The Whispering Woman. Uh, and so a rich man has a daughter who cannot make decisions on her own. She literally becomes hysterical. So he hires a woman to be with her all the time to tell his daughter what to do. Every decision. I mean, like, not How do you like, sit what should on I have bed? for dinner? She's like standing there and she's like, should I sit down? Should I lean against the wall? Should I do that? And she starts like spiraling real bad. And the lady's like, just sit down. And she's like, well, how should I sit down? Should I sit down cross-legged? Should I sit at the edge of the bed? And she's like, no, no, you just sit down right here. Sit down. Yeah. So this lady has to, like, constantly feed this girl, like, decisive information because the very idea of choice, like, just, like, locks her into a spiral. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So the woman who is helping the girl uh, ends up being killed by her housemate. And this woman's ghost comes back and whispers in the girl's ear how to kill her housemate. And the girl does. And the woman's ghost uh, at the end says that she'll always be with her. That's the picture of the two women in the flower garden there. It is the creepiest picture we could find because this is actually not a very creepy story when it no, comes down I, to it. The murder is probably bad. But um, <laughs> probably her, her, her housemate who killed her was a real, real piece of work. Uh, so it was probably a little okay at least. But like, like it's this girl is incapable of making decisions. And so this lady becomes her decision, like the tool of her ability to decide so much so that even after this lady dies, like her spirit is still tied to this girl insofar as this girl like relies so infinitely heavy on her and throughout the course of the story you see the 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 um the woman who's helping the girl her her sort of like health deteriorates as she becomes more absorbed in being like a part of this girl being just like a outside structure of the way her brain thinks as opposed to like being her own individual person and so and so when you like sort of 
find out that this lady's dead, you see the girl like standing there and she like, you know, she gets like presented dinner or something when, when she first hears about it. And she like sort of like giggles like, no, 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 that, that tickles. Like the lady's still talking in her ear and then starts eating. Like she was able to make all those decisions on her own, but she's still being talked to by this spirit, even though like, and the, of course the dad is like, Ooh, I, don't, I don't know about that. But also let's not ask <laughs> But questions. yeah, my daughter's not <laughs> spiraling anymore. So I guess success. Yeah. Yay. So this girl probably isn't possessed, right? But she has definitely become a medium, a channel for this one particular ghost, which helps her in her daily life. So when we think about talking about the Mushi, exposure to some of the Mushi in a small amount helps, but exposure to too much hurts. And she's sort of in this sweet spot where it helps. And like, yeah, she does kill the Whispering Woman's murderer. He deserved it. Um, but we don't know where the line between this woman's personal agency ends and where the spirit influence begins which uh, ends up leaving this episode with a interesting ethical quandary of yeah. if you are the ghost where does your influence end yeah and, and we, we haven't brought it up so far in, t in talking about any of these episodes but especially the ones where you're getting like two episodes like two stories inside of an episode most of these stories don't actually have an end they simply stop telling the story. So a lot of these, you're just like, well, what happens to them? Or like, well, was it ghosts? Like you just, like you just don't know. There's like this weird unanswered question occurring the entire time throughout this entire show where we're getting these like glimpses into, I, it feels so much, the way they have this written, it feels like you're just getting glimpses into Junji Ito's mind and he's just like, what about this little bit of this story here that I'm working on? And you're like, that's gangster and horrifying. But also, can we get a full anime out of this? 15 minutes in a Netflix episode is not acceptable. <laughs> All right, I have so many questions. It, it brings that energy a lot. This is one of those where like, you don't really know where it's a ghost or it's this girl coping with the death of her like whispering nanny, there's not, it's not like clear cut and dry. And you get that a lot in this series. You don't get a lot of cut and dry answers. You, it's very up to your interpretation, right? Yeah. Yeah, and there's definitely a lot of that in this next and final one, too, which is Soichi's beloved pet. So a family uh, gets a cat, they fall in love with the cat, and there is an evil little brother. The evil little brother gets jealous and speaks a curse. And then the cat starts physically changing and also doing creepier and creepier things. Oh, so weird. As this happens, the family has a harder time loving the cat, but the evil brother loves this cat more and more. And we've got two pictures of that in the middle with this like creepy kid and a cat and then also the, the creepy, creepy cat kid with the with the goth eyeshadow uh he that's the that's the little brother he is a nightmare an absolute nightmare um and like as he's spoken curse to this cat in this episode specifically um or, or in this part specifically the cat has like disappeared for a couple of hours even though it's not like it not like that kind of outside cat and it comes back with this sort of like pulsing mass of eyes and and legs uh very lovecraftian style and uh, and, and the yeah. brother's like oh that's so great maybe next time i'll tell you what to bring me back from the hell dimension and the family's like i guess i guess that's just what's happening now here in this house <laughs> okay yeah because uh, the cat starts getting like super weird and it's like a, it's not attacking the family it's just doing increasingly like messed up shit Right? Like at one point in time, the cat is like, it starts to shed 
but like a like a genuinely disturbing amount of hair. So like the creepy little brother is just petting the cat in the room. Like everything's fine. I'm just petting the cat. And the family is like, I am choking to death on fur. What is happening in the air in this house? And they go to the little brother and they're like, we got to get out of this house. The air quality is messed up, bro. And they open the door and this brother's just like scratching this cat, just like fluffing fur into the air. And they're like, why are you doing this right now, man? And he's just like, I love this cat now. What are you talking about? I thought we we're supposed to love this thing, right? Because he's like just an asshole, this little brother. Um, but it's really unclear whether he's cursed the family or cursed the cat or cursed the situation. Yeah, because the cat um, doesn't get hurt. The cat makes it. Don't worry about ooh, that. We were on the edge of our we seat. Were we were very like, this concerned cat is hurt, about we this are, cat in this episode, we are gonna bro. Yeah. But the cat's fine, so yeah. Yeah, but the brother was really, really upset about this family loving the cat. And we don't really have any like backstory to understand if the family dotes on him at all, but um, he was really, really upset when he spoke this curse. So the ancient Greeks and Romans thought that the more absolutely unhinged you were when you were performing magic, when you were performing a curse, when you were performing a beneficial spell or anything like that, this actually really comes out a lot in love spells and in ancient Greek and Roman stuff. And it's a little creepy, but uh, they thought the they more were. unhinged you were, the stronger the result of your magic. So this brother was absolutely crazy person, unhinged about how much this family Deranged. loved this cat. He uh, So when he was upset and he spoke the curse, he was fervent. And the curse seems to have worked very well and actually may have run its course by the end of the episode. So we're not clear who he cursed, what he cursed, or specifically why, because we can hear him sort of start to say it, but we don't get the whole he, story. He, he, he primarily is just like, I curse this cat, I curse this cat. Curse, 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 curse. He's just sort of like repeating and kind of like going manic about it. This this last picture here where you see the like cat all like spooky eyes and stuff, this is actually not really ever presented as the face of the cat during the episode with the exception of at the end. So like the cat does all of this weird cat stuff and then the cat seems fine back to normal cat and everybody's like oh the cat's okay now and like our little brother's less crazy for the moment we guess so like that's gangster and the sister picks up this cat and she's like oh i'm so glad you're back to being a normal cat now and as she's petting it we get a like like the jump scare like we get the yeah. we get the like hand out of the ground like the cat's like rah and its face gets all creepy and then back to normal cat end of episode <laughs> um but but also we have to bring up this little brother shows up in a few other episodes. This is the one where he's the least nightmare, which is shocking, I know. It's, um, it's a and lot. I think the conclusion that we can take from the series, especially the episodes involving this little brother, is that either Junji Ito hates and doesn't trust children in general, or specifically hates and doesn't trust his little brother. Because every little brother in this series is just the most annoying cruelest, yeah. most nightmarish person you could imagine. I mean, just like the worst, right? So clearly, he has an issue with little brothers. Not just little brothers, it's definitely kids. It's, I mean, it's all the yeah. kids, but especially this little brother, and he shows up in several episodes, um, and we don't really, it's hard to find a, a visual example of this that would make any sense without having seen the entire episode, but every episode is connected insofar as like weird background detail shit. 
right? Yeah. Like the like we told you about the guy with the books. He lived at a beautiful mansion. Like a picture of that mansion is hung in one of the, another episode's family's houses as their like cousin's house. And like, in a different episode, whatever. you see the book that turns into one of the egregores that haunts him. Like in a school, in like a, in the school, like yeah. library or something like that. So so like every episode is kind of like vaguely connected. This is. This series reminds me so much of reading H.P. Lovecraft, where he's, like, created this universe that is sort of connected, but, like, not directly, not, like, flat, straight line connected, right? It's all very kind of wibbly-wobbly, like, existential dread connected, where as a viewer, you're like, okay, yeah, that was in a previous episode. I don't know what I should be afraid of about that, but I am, so cool. Thank you, dude. Uh, so that's... That's Junji Ito. Uh, highly recommend, like, read all of his stuff. His his manga are fantastic. If you're a fantastic. horror fan. If you're not a horror if you're fan, a horror please fan, stay yeah, away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you don't do horror, don't watch this. Uh, so, but before we move on to the last... Um, show. Uh, the last show, do we have any questions or comments on Junji Ito in the red here? So, about the, the book stuff we're going to like. Can multiple things from, come from one book? And does that mean that, like, the whole Harry Potter cast will come to into existence? Con conceptually, yes. So the way that an egregore works is it's a function of focus, right? So like if we're, if we're talking about this from like a purely practical standpoint, right? Conceptually, you could, as an individual person, create into existence any number of egregore from any number of sources, whether that's a bunch of egregore from one source or a bunch of egregore from a bunch of sources. However, what's generally found in practice when it comes to creating egregore is that if you're trying to create one very powerful egregore, so more real, the more powerful the egregore is, the more physically tangible it is, right? Um, you generally want more people because more people are able to hold more focus. Or if you're trying to do like, let's say the entire cast of Harry Potter, which is a perfect example, what you would do is you would get a group of people together and like you focus on Harry and he focuses on Hermione and she focuses on Ron. And that way, you're, the distributed load across the book series means that each character is still gonna get one full human attention to create the egregore as opposed to trying to split your attention which would which would form less strong or less physically present egregore uh there's a movie that talks about this uh do you remember the name of that movie where that guy's an egregore no, um, off the top of I my can't head, think of no. it. There's there's a movie that specifically talks but about how is... like they are able to summon an egregore so alive that this egregore is like an actual living human, right? But it takes teams and teams of people constantly working at it to like keep him in physical form because of how difficult it is for us to hold one thought so purely in our minds. So like, yes, you could do it with a bunch of characters as an individual, but it's more likely that that would be like a bunch of whispering voices or possibly a bunch of non-corporeal effigies and not a bunch of physical people because of the like mental cost, the strain of that, right? Simplification. Uh, a, a more recent uh, and kind of like available thing for something like thinking about Harry Potter characters so much they come to life would be um, the show and book American Gods. So the idea behind that is is if you believe in um, you know the Greek goddess Aphrodite enough, she is going to 
basically exist because you have believed her into existence. And it's a very similar thing to egregores, right? Egregore is kind of like a bunch of people focusing on creating a specific thing, whereas American Gods looks at it in a very similar way, but slightly different, where you have a bunch of disparate people that don't know each other necessarily believing about that very specific thing. So you, I'm not necessarily literally you, but you as a person, if you really, really believe that those thought forms, that those tropes that those characters are are there are real are a thing um then you are essentially creating an american god out of yeah them. yeah in in the in the book american gods they talk about the new world gods which is like highways and the internet and like uh like uh, like uh skyscrapers and things like that and it's because like we all sort of like every time you drive on the freeway you worship at the altar of the american roadway system therefore every time somebody drives they put a little bit more power into that egregore right because it doesn't have to necessarily just be one big prank you don't you don't you don't do it in one go, right? It's the it's that constant repetition, like feeds into it to create it. And that's where in the book, if you've never read American Gods, I highly recommend it. It is a fantastic book. Um, but that's where they talk about how the New World Gods gain power every day, where the old gods lose it. Because people have forgotten the old ways, but we all drive on freeways, we all use the internet, so we empower them with every decision we make, right? In the pink here? Um, I, I just Um, whereas definitely, um, I've just reminded that, like with a lot of the, um, like a lot of the gods there, it's like a very much thing where, hey, this is powered completely by belief and whatnot, and if there's no belief, then it's kind of, it, it's gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the egregores, are, they are really yes. common. It is a really common trope, yes. although it's not necessarily named that way, right? We actually yeah. talk a lot about this concept in our podcast, just like in general. Um, and one of my favorite things to sort of talk about is the difference between in the Marvel Cinematic Universe and the actual Norse deities of like Thor and Loki. They are so dramatically different in the Marvel Universe than they are in the traditional Norse tales. But for some people particularly nowadays that may be really into Thor or Loki or other types of things like that um, you know you, it may be more real for you to think of it as the Marvel portrayal than it is of the traditional Norse portrayal yeah or also how I how basically George Lucas created a religion that is Jedi you know yeah. so the more you believe it the more real it is and it shows up well, in a ton of different anime, yeah. and it shows up in, well, pretty much any isekai. <laughs> Fair. Yeah. Um, and also a ton of movies and a ton of things. It's definitely something that, as humans, we, at some sort of level as humans, I think we sort of know that when we believe it to be true, it becomes true. Yeah, at least in some way. It's the it's the confidence equation. If you like that, fake it till you make it. You hear people say all the time, like if you believe it works, it works, right? Whether or not the logical science of it makes sense. If you stand like Superman for five minutes, your endorphin levels go up. Like put your hands on your hips, puff out your chest, look up at the sky like Superman. Do that for five minutes. You just feel better, regardless of whether you want to. And it's just the nature of that pose literally means so much to us as Westerners these days that it affects the way that our brains think, 
right? So, like, and the the Marvel v, like, historical Thor is such a fantastic example of how, like, of course Marvel Thor and what most, like, uh, like, um... Asatru and people who worship the Norse pantheon would be, would would believe is that because Thor is strong, he would be he would present as like a buff guy because we as Westerners believe that a strong guy is a buff guy. You you, you think of us when you think of like a really strong dude, you think of somebody with like big guns and all this kind of stuff. Even though if you go to a strongman competition versus a bodybuilder competition, strongmen are not buff looking guys. They're big for sure. But they, they don't have all that muscle showing and stuff like that. It's not healthy for you. <laughs> you know, you listen to the stories of these actors who have to portray these characters, and they're just like, I gotta eat more chicken than I can stomach, and like in between takes, I'm doing push ups and crunches and shit. So, like, but that's the way that we perceive that. So, the logic there would be that, like, the structure, the physical manifestation of Thor shifts as our society begins to inhabit, um, like differential beliefs about what strength looks like or things like like red hair not being this like crazy mystical thing to us and like blonde hair being this important thing so like th these little changes in characters like that uh, as you translate from like ancient traditions into like modern media is often are often decided and based upon the way that we as a, a society are going to want to accept that to begin with which sort of proliferates the idea that this like egregore structure is going to alter the gods around us all the time a again a thing that they talk about in american gods just because that book really covers all of its bases about that stuff yeah yeah so yes. uh yep Yes, it, it is, is a very lot, much like Twilight yeah, Zone. Yeah, like Twilight Zone. Yeah, yeah. There is often, I find, a very thin line between science fiction or kind of like spoopy stuff and uh, spiritual stuff. Science fiction and horror, science fiction and spiritualism, really kind of go hand in hand in a way that you wouldn't necessarily think makes sense, but. I mean, if you've seen Gurren Lagann, believe in the me that believes in you, that believes in you, right? <laughs> yeah. And that really, in and of itself, is the thing. And it's a very fervent belief. And you can see that this, this idea of belief creating the structure and more belief lending the power to the structure that thereby reinforces the spiritual yeah. structure yeah. is pretty much in every yeah. single well, anime. And, and in, in, the, in the manner in which Junji Ito tells these tales or the portions of these tales that we see, you, you sort of get that, you know, like Twilight Zone is a great example. Um, uh, the like Aesop's fables where, where you get that like if you're getting this like tiny glimpse of a story that's trying to maybe not necessarily give you a moral lesson but tell you a thing that you're going to walk away from and be like all right I gotta like think on this for five minutes yeah it's gonna like <laughs> sit with you for, like, you know it's gonna while. sit with you for a while and then from that you're going to be able to glean some information it's um watching these episodes Twilight Zone is a fantastic example of the way these episodes sort of sort of like go through it reminds me a lot of like um like the original series of Star Trek or the first few seasons of TNG. It X reminds Files. Uh, yeah, X-Files, where it's doing that thing where it's doing that, like, not like a full, um, 
like what a twist, like big turnaround. But it's doing that like it's gonna set up a universe, it's gonna set up some characters, it's gonna put them through a situation, you're gonna get a like, maybe it's ghosts or whatever, right? And then the story's going to not necessarily wrap up, but simply stop. So that way you now have to put yourself in the position of the characters or entity, depending on who's the primary focus. So that way you have to resolve the rest of the story in your mind, which... That really works out for Mushishi as well, too. From the standpoint of, like, looking at this show as a big pitch meeting, right? As a big, like, give me a full anime, Junji Ito hit that nail square, right? Because there are easily five episodes that I could go, like, make it a whole... Put two seasons of this out. Twelve episode seasons, no question. It would it would slay. People would love it, right? So you're definitely getting that where you as the audience member is interacting with the story more than you would in like a full tale, a full monster of the week style story. Because you're getting these little snippets. And some of these episodes are like ten minutes long. Or the uh, stories, excuse me, within the episodes. It's like ten minutes long. It is not enough time for you to really get in there and you want to, you know? So, yeah, I like that's a perfect comparison. Yeah. All right. Well, we are going to move on to our third and final anime that we are talking about today, Miruko-chan. Uh, and this means essentially the girl who can see them. Uh, and this anime is also based off of a manga, which aired in, uh, well, not the manga, the anime, <laughs> aired in fall of 2021. So this is a relatively recent anime, and this is available on Crunchyroll. Uh, and in this... Um, First, I'm going to talk about the spirits, and then I'm going to kind of work back into the characters. Trust me, it'll make sense. So in this anime, we basically see two types of spirits. We see spirits with uh, black auras, and this is the main way that most spirits in this show are shown. Uh, these spirits are mostly portrayed as being horrifying, and many of them are indeed horrifying They're, looking and appear to they be are malefic in nature. so adorable. I do not get horrifying from these things. They are just <laughs> cute. They're like adorable nightmares. I love the spirits in this Some show. of them are They're in fantastic. fact adorable nightmares. Not all of these spirits are malefic. There are a few instances of them being friendly. Like uh, there is one episode. So this is a, a full story arc type anime. Very yeah, it's standard. not really monster of the week. It's you've kind of got like reoccurring ghosts. Um, and you're following this character as she evolves into slowly dealing with the fact that she can see, well, that stuff all yeah, the time yeah. in like right now Japan, which is obviously affecting her life in a negative way. Yeah. So in one episode, there is an old man ghost who is like walking down the street saying a series of numbers, like 1642 or whatever. Um, and he keeps repeating it. And he eventually comes up to an old woman who our main character, Miko, that's uh, the girl with the dark hair. Um, uh, and he says these numbers to this old woman that Miko is standing with. And the old woman goes inside and the old man ghost says thank you to Miko and leaves. And this is one of the first times that we see the ghosts interact with her in a way that is not negative. Um, and Miko is like, what? So then she like peekaboos basically into their house and we see this old woman go inside of her room and open a safe using the numbers that he was repeating so that she can get something precious out of the safe. And it is clear in this episode, we see a picture of him later, it's that this man was the 
dead was the woman's dead husband. So at this point, we're like, light bulb moment, not all of these black aura spirits are bad. Because up until now, we really didn't know. Now these black aura spirits usually seem preoccupied with a particular person, location, or situation. Or like task. Yeah, or task. And if they notice that Miko notices them, they get worked up and obsessed with her. So in a way, they're sort of like, pinned to yeah. the specific well, place like imagine or or imagine thing. if you're like pinned to this location and you want to say something right but nobody can interact with you so like obviously as soon as miko and she tries very hard to not look or act like she could see these things but like if they notice that she can stay like like see them or interact with them they kind of like like really go a little bit nuts on trying to focus on her simply because like well now i can get the thing that i need to get done out yeah you know? like there's a scene where she's um in a coffee shop and there's a man in the coffee shop who's talking on the phone um and he's like don't worry babe you're the only one for me and there's like this female ghost next to him um and you can see that's the guy with the brown hair in the middle on the bottom uh and he and this this seems to be an upset ex-girlfriend and Miko notices the spirit, but then the spirit notices her noticing it and starts to terrorize Miko until the spirit is satisfied that Miko isn't trying to date the man. This sounds horrifying. It's actually pretty hilarious in the end, yeah. but it's also horrifying, especially to Miko. <laughs> Poor girl. Um, but then we see the spirit follow the man throughout the coffee shop and and interact with him as a upset and jealous ex-girlfriend would. It is unclear whether or not this is actually the spirit of a dead person or the spirit that is sort of like from a bad breakup vibes attached to this guy. We have yeah. no confirmation of that. Um, so we're, it's a little un, unclear whether the spirits are all were once living beings or whether they are a bit more of an essence that sort of lingers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and it seems like this black aura is sort of the default look of the spirit. And until Miko recognizes them for what they are or were, they have the black aura. Um, and whether they're malicious or not, they're always black aura spirits until like she believes or confirms in some way that they're like not doing sketchy stuff. And then they become gold aura spirits. But also sometimes they remain black aura spirits. There's literally no rhyme or reason here. So <laughs> not a lot of consistency in that one, <laughs> weirdly enough. Yeah. Now we also can see that spirits have the ability to affect the real world, like um, sudden gusts of wind or disrupting electronics. And we also know that dogs and ravens can see these spirits. Yeah. And then um, we also have gold aura spirits. Uh, and these spirits appear to Miko as beneficial spirits. They look way less scary, although she still seems afraid of them. Totally warranted, right? Yeah. Or at least she's afraid of the idea of seeing them. We can see that there's one that's kind of like an old man that has little glowy bits. That's her father. Um, and that's a particularly uh, heartbreaking episode Reveal? that we find out. Oh, and then we also have these adorable little cat spirits. Um, these are this man's previous cats that he had owned and loved. And then we also, on the top in the middle, we have um, a, another, a third type of gold aura spirits. Um, and they're sort of w like Wobbly electric. gold auras? Yeah, they're like, like shaky. That is the least blurry a picture I could get of them, let me tell you how blurry these things are. And they 
appear, and this is why we can't, like, for sure be certain that a thing was once an alive thing, and sometimes it's just, like, a spirit or, like, a kami of some sort, is that these are, like, fox spirits from a shrine that just that is a showed up shrine. to help her. Yeah. And the thing behind them is, like, the main spirit it's like the of, big fox the, spirit. of, the, of yeah. the shrine. But its, it's face is, like, a... Um, a little nightmarish. Yeah. Uh, a little Princess Mononoke. It's like if just you like will. tentacle teeth. Yeah. In yeah. a flower petal shape. It's a, it's a whole thing for no reason. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But it so, seems cool. It doesn't hurt anybody. So I guess that's all well, right. Well, it doesn't hurt Miko, and that's all that we care about. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> now, also during this season, we see Miko try to use salt to use the spirits to go away. This is something that you hear colloquially in real life a lot using salt yeah. to cleanse and banish and ward off things. She so puts that's... it in a bowl next to her bed. Not how you use salt. Put a circle around you. Yeah. It's crazy. Come on, guys. Yeah. Uh, we also <laughs> see them trying to ward off spirits with prayer beads, you know, the bracelets. Um, though, And it works, unless it's a particularly powerful spirit, which in this show is denoted by either larger physical presence or more horrifying physical presence. Yeah. Um, You're either bigger or scarier. Yeah, if you're bigger or scarier, those prayer bead bracelets just explode just apart. Blow up off her wrist With so force. many times. Yeah, yeah. And then we also see that spirits can consume other spirits to become more powerful. Yeah. Um, there is a scene where she finds, where she's going to go to a vending machine to get something to drink, I think. And she sees a tiny, adorable, little naked man, old man spirit with like a little booty. And he runs away and she goes to follow it. And it jumps inside of the mouth of just the head of a giant old man spirit. And you're like, mm, I didn't need that. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't need that today. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then there's also a, uh, a trash can crab spirit in the tunnel um, that we see consuming other spirits. And it then, seems like that's how spirits power up is yeah. by consuming like weaker spirits. Yeah. Um, but we don't really get like a much more than we see it happening. Right. She's very anti learning about her powers. So we, as the audience, also don't get to learn very much about her powers. She primarily wants to ignore them, so that way she can live a normal teenage girl life. Yeah, so it, that obviously doesn't work. That doesn't Out. work. Yeah, clearly. Yeah. Um, so speaking of her powers, let's talk a little bit more about our characters. So our main character, Miko, is a high school student who can just all of a sudden one day suddenly see spirits. The first episode, first like couple of episodes have really wonderful foreshadowing for what it looks like to an outside observer who cannot see spirits, which is most of us, um, basically all of us. Yeah. Uh, and it's pretty fantastic. So Miko spends most of her time trying to pretend that she cannot see the spirits. Be and because of this, she seems aloof and awkward and just like, weird to yeah. people oh, who can't see to, ghosts. To quote one of her teachers, she's a little creepy, man. Yeah. Yeah, he's just like, you know, I thought there was something wrong with you because you're like a little creepy, dude. And she's like, oh, I mean, it's not, you don't, uh. <laughs> because no, she does like weird creepy. shit when you think about like the spirit not being there, uh, which is the right way you should be thinking about any action she has whilst watching this show is just like, okay, imagine that shadowy nightmare thing isn't there. Yeah, that's weird, bro. This is a public space. All right, cool. You yeah. know? Because she's, like, super weird about it. Because she's trying to, like, not 
she's keeping an eye on it, but trying to like not look like she's keeping an eye on it. So it's it's real like she's like doing one of these all the time, like looking off to the side a little bit, and people are like, all right, or yeah, like abruptly the, leaving and at, things bro? like that. Like, yeah, and and just to be clear, this takes place in a universe that is very similar to our own. So the only people that can see spirits are actually the people that we are going to be talking about. No one else that is we've been able to not, not even yeah. has an inkling, which leads to some interesting and hilarious slash horrifying moments with in the show because Miko can see them and no one else can. Um, so we also meet two other people besides Miko that can see spirits. Um, and that's uh, Yuria who goes to the same school as Miko but is a couple of years older. She's the one with the blonde and pink pigtails. Um, and Yuria figures out that Miko can see ghosts by sneaking around and watching her. Miko plays dumb for a while trying to convince Yuria that she doesn't see ghosts and spirits but eventually fesses up. Um, and Yuria can see some spirits, but they tend to be less powerful spirits, which is actually well, quite concerning. She sees them with less detail. Yeah. She like primarily just sees them as like um like, black sort of like, smudges. like smoke, like smudges in her vision. But what she can see that Miko can't see is auras. And we can see that there's a flaming aura next to this blonde chick, Hana, um, which we're going to talk about in a moment. But um, so Yuria can see some of the spirits, but not all of them. Miko definitely can see them the best out of everyone that we're introduced to. And the, the third and final person that we know of in this universe that can see spirits is Mitsue, who is also called the godmother. That's the old woman in the hood. Um, she used to run a business in the mall, offering up fortunes and exorcisms and other spiritual goods. She's a pretty hilarious character yeah. because she calls herself a con artist a few times but clearly she can see well, spirits as smudges and she can also see auras she she basically like miko shows up to her and is like maybe i should get some prayer beads about this like prayer beads are going to protect me from all these ghosts maybe i get some prayer beads and as soon as she walks up uh, the godmother is like these kids what a bunch of rubes. I'm going to sell them just some pretty rocks and call them prayer beads. So that she like sells them to them. Immediately they like detonate off Miko's wrist. And she's like, oh shit. And then she looks and sees that there's like, like a big old spirit there. And is like, all right, I'm going to go into the safe and get the like good, good prayer beads, right? Now I'm going to do the real magic. So she gets like the real magic stuff still detonates off her wrist. And she, this, this godmother is basically just like, well, I guess I can't help you. I'm closing shop and retiring to the country now. And just fucking leaves town. She's just done with it. Like, never mind, none of this. Yeah, which is fantastic. She's such a great character. Uh, and she's really the only one that we know who can see the spirits clearly and auras clearly. So the sort of like way that you have to look at it is like Miko can see spirits clearly, but no auras. And Yuria can see auras clearly, but like almost can't see spirits, right? They're just like, like smudges. And the godmother appears to be able to see both spirits clearly and auras clearly, but it's never really explained whether this is just like a function of time or a function of practice or just like a naturally occurring gift thing. Again, because almost nobody is trying to use their powers and learn from them in this show. Everybody's real, none of that, never mind, about the whole situation. Yeah, and then the last character that we're going to talk about is Miko's best friend, Hana. That's the blonde chick with the fire aura. Hana is not magical at all. Oh yeah, she can't Not see none all. of it. She cannot see any of this. And she thinks her friend is just weird, but she's okay with her friend just being weird, man. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, so Hana is constantly hungry. I'm talking like, you know how there's Hobbit jokes about first breakfast, second breakfast. This girl is on that level she's and never then not, some. She's never she's not eating hungry. or complaining about not eating in the show. It's bonkers how much she eats. And hilarious. Yeah, it's so funny. So it's indicated, and, and we basically like hear a variety of characters talk about it, that her very strong life aura, that like fiery glowy thing, is what is attracting the spirits. And the more spirits she is around, the hungrier she gets. So she is basically constantly eating. Of course, Hana has literally no idea about all of this. And it continues to get Miko and Yuria into interesting situations Shenanes. as a result result of that. So to break this down with these characters, we've talked a little bit about mediums and that and that's really what this show is all about. It's all about mediumship and having the sight. Um, so as we talked about before, a medium is somebody who can commu communicate with the spirit realm and really that's Miko and Yuria and Mitsue, aka the godmother, whether they like it or not. Yeah. And mediums have been documented as far back as we have recorded history in every single culture around the world. Sometimes they're seen as holy people, but also sometimes they are pariahs, whether socially or culturally. And each medium experiences spirits and the spirit realm in a slightly different way. Um, and, but you can sort of see trends to sort of pick that thread there and we do see that our three characters that can see spirits are clearly at different levels and we would consider them clairvoyance uh, because they can see things that are not physically present there's a bunch of other clairs also and we see that Miko also has clairaudience she can hear the spirits and also clair aliens which is smelling them that seems like that's horrible yeah, yeah. she doesn't <laughs> seem to enjoy that whatsoever yeah. As, as, as you could imagine, as you could imagine. Yeah, and um, there are also auras. So an aura is an energy field around a person, an animal, or an object, and they're usually colored based on that person's disposition, but may also change based on their emotional or physical state. And most people employ uh, color associations to auras to help give them in, uh, additional weight. So Hana, with her glowy orange aura, it's like yellow and orange, right? So that's sunny and positive. The um, people that the show wants to show us of having a... a are bad have a black and red aura which would be like angry and yeah, upset like and malicious Ill. Um, malevolent and, yeah and and i know that we talked about the black aura spirits um, but that just seems to be a design choice to show us that we don't know about them yeah. until they then receive a different color yeah uh and and it, it appears that 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 maybe the auras that are being shown to us are a function of what the observer is aware of, right? Because like, so like in this picture, you see Miko with this, with this nightmare sales associate here. And this lady's like, oh, that dress looks beautiful on you. You should definitely pick that up. Isn't that great? She's got like a real long neck that's all snaky. And um, so like, she's not doing any harm. She's just trying to sell clothes at this Claire's or whatever, <laughs> just being a nightmare, right? And so of course, like Miko's just like, I don't wanna be here and interact with this because it like might see me or whatever. So like, even though this has a black aura, it's not necessarily malevolent, right? Um, but so, so, okay. So in a very weird nutshell, this is Meriko-chan, uh, fantastic, more modern anime. Um, before we get to questions on that, because we're getting close to the end of the, of the, 
of the panel. Panel or what have you. Um, so we have, like I said before, we have stickers here and uh, like Book of Shadows pages that you can like flip through and look at and business cards. So come get stickers. I, I have a lot of them and I don't need them. Yeah. I made them. And if you so enjoyed I can get them whenever I want. And if you have a question, you can just come up and talk to us. Uh, and then, uh, like, all of our social links and stuff are in this QR code, and there's a QR code on our business cards, because it's the future and that's easier than writing all that out. So thank you guys for attending. This was super fun, and I hope you guys thank have you. a magical time with it. Have a wonderful fan of everybody. Yeah. <laughs>